Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks so much for joining me. Coming up on this week's episode, you'll hear my chat with author Niven Govinden about his love for two documentaries. Jenny Livingston's legendary 1990 film Paris is Burning, which examined ball culture in Harlem in the late 80s, and Alec Kashishian's 1991 film Truth or Dare, which famously followed Madonna's blonde ambition world tour. So, essentially, spoiler alert, this is gonna get pretty fucking gay. I don't think there are any homophobes who listen to this podcast, but if there are, first of all, how have you lasted this long? And secondly, you may want to switch over to, I don't know, Joe Rogan's podcast or something right now. This episode features an intense amount of homosexuality. I think that's something to be celebrated, but I don't want to take anybody on this journey who is not fully on board. So there you go. You've been warned. But before we get to the queer explosion, let's start with, oh god, even this bit's gonna be kind of gay. The homophobes are really gonna suffer here. Yeesh. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about representation in art. Or rather, I'll talk and you listen. I know I've talked a lot about the importance of representation for marginalized and underrepresented communities, and Niven and I touched a lot on those issues too. Seeing a reflection of yourself in a film or on a TV screen or in a gallery or at the theater is an incredible experience when those images are few and far between. It can make you feel seen, it can make you feel included in the conversation, and it can make you feel less alone, like you're part of a community of people who share common experiences. But not all representation has the same positive effect. If that representation relies on stereotypes, or if the artwork is created by someone who is outside of the experience being portrayed, like white people making art about black people or straight people making art about queer people, that kind of art can have the opposite effect. It can make you feel othered or misunderstood, or like you're even further away from a seat at the cultural table. You want a personal example to clarify that point? Of course you do. There are some big, successful gay movies that I really dislike for exactly the reasons I've described. Brokeback Mountain is a really good example. To me, that's a movie about gay people made by straight people that reduces those gay characters to the saddest possible outcomes for gay people. When it came out, I was so ready for queer love stories that didn't end in tragedy. 
every gay film that I could remember seeing was about the AIDS epidemic or about anti-gay violence. I wanted to see movies that showed happy queer people living full lives, people who didn't spend the entire fucking film being shit on or desperately trying to get other people to treat them with the tiniest shred of decency. Brokeback Mountain was supposed to be this great love story, but it's full of fucking misery. The moral of that story seems to be, it sucks to be gay, you'll ruin your life, and you'll ruin everybody else's life. Bye! Fuck that shit. That is why it's so important to let people from marginalized communities tell their own stories. I want the world to move past those skeletal stereotypes towards the infinite spectrum of storytelling that exists for straight white people. When you watch shows like Atlanta and Insecure that are created by and predominantly starring black people, they're wildly different. They differ in tone and structure and subject matter and storytelling. And that's what's necessary for true diversity of representation to exist. We have to allow room for the full spectrum of human experience for all different kinds of people. How can you have those moments of connection and recognition with artworks about people like you if that representation is so limited and entirely dependent on stereotypes? The quality and quantity and range of options matters. The people who create the art matters. Things are slowly, incrementally getting better. But what can we all do to keep this upward trajectory going? While you're on lockdown, expand your horizons. Engage with art that's made by all different kinds of people. Seek out art that represents lots of different communities. And the good news is you can still keep up with all of your normal, derivative, white, heteronormative shit too because you can't really leave the house right now and you've got all that extra time to fill. There's room for everybody in the world of art, so let's make sure that everyone is getting a fair shot at being heard. And it's a win-win for all of us. We'll be making sure that everyone feels represented when they engage with art and entertainment, and we'll also make sure that we've got a never-ending stream of content to keep us sane until quarantine is over. Perfect! Okay, now that I've got that out of my system, it's full steam ahead to our feature presentation. Here comes my chat with Niven Govindan about Paris's burning and Truth or Dare. Shall we start with uh, Paris is Burning? Okay. Do you remember uh, when you saw it for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I was, so 91, I was 17. Yeah, 17. So I saw it in the summer of 91 or maybe the autumn of 91. I think like late summer probably. Yeah, and I just remember seeing it. I think I read about it before I saw it. So I think I might have read about it in the face or something like that at the time. So I kind of knew it was coming. And then, yeah, I remember going to cinema with some friends to see it and it just blowing me away. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. the face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, was something like... Um, well, I, they're, they're back. They came back last year um, and they're doing like some like four issues a year. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool. But, you know, when you've grown up with something, you kind of look at it in, in a different way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have this... I, you know, I, I grew up in the States and so I'd have to import it. And it was this essential thing that I really look forward to every month. And that feeling, I think, is not quite there with the the new version, but um, it's better than nothing. And also we're in, it was in a pre-internet world. So kind of, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. of me learning about the world as a teenager was, you know, my life sort of changed at the age of 14 when I first started reading ID. And then The Face. But ID was kind of the, the magazine I was kind of more obsessed with because it felt far more kind of countercultural in a way. Whereas The Face sort of documented the time, but it could get quite mainstream at points. You mm -hmm. know? 
but they you know one kind of complemented the other but yeah it was it was those things that kind of helped me learn about the world and just sort of learn about stuff that was not outside your front door and yeah everything from music art clothes all that stuff so yeah so from that was really my springboard into finding out about Paris is Burning and then watching it 17 years old and just being really blown away and feeling that maybe in some way I already identified with what was happening there without knowing what it was particularly and sort of um, feeling very strongly that that was kind of part of my life but not knowing how to make it part of my life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just also uh, not to harp on too much about magazines like id in the face but just thinking about uh <laughs> you know pre-internet having mm. um sources that you could rely on things that you know you knew represented or uh, at least frequently hit the nail on the head when it came to your taste that you could you know say every month this magazine is going to have a bunch of suggestions for me that I'm going to be interested in at least. And there's a good possibility that I'll find things that I really love. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like now what you, you know, there's so much more access to everything that's going on in the world of art and culture, but it's harder for me at least. I mean, I, there are still websites that I go to, to, to look for recommendations and stuff, but it still feels like this overwhelming avalanche of information. And I feel like I'm compelled to do more digging and look to more sources than I would have when I was a teenager, when it was just like, nope, I have my three things that I look to and, you know, find stuff from. And also you don't, you don't, you wouldn't spend the same amount of time pouring over every page. I mean, you know, nowadays we would say it was curated, Mm. All they were doing was just putting a magazine together for every month for what they thought was kind of spoke of, you know, whether they were plugging stuff or whether it was just a reflection of what was happening in that moment. I mean, I remember when I first started buying ID, so it was sort of 87. And pretty much within the first couple of issues, they were they were really doing big old write-ups and fashion spreads based around the second summer of love and Acid House and stuff. And, you know, I wasn't, I was, I was still going to school. I was like 14. I didn't really start going out till I was about 16-ish. So, you know, those clubs were like, you know, never, never land for me. They were miles away. But you felt you were literally in the middle of it just by reading what was going on through through those magazines. I suppose now, you know, with social media, you can feel you're connected in a different kind of way. But um, yeah, no, no, no. They were kind of lifeboats. And also, actually, in terms of social history, what was going on politically in the UK at that time in the mid to late 80s or about 87, 88 Margaret Thatcher's government passed a a piece of legislation called Clause 28, which banned the promotion of homosexuality in schools. It, it came about because ostensibly it was really about sex education, but really it had widespread ramifications across the entire education system. And actually what you realise, I didn't really think about it at the time, but but it's, it, it sort of reared its head in this country last year with some schools protesting about a new set of um, personal sexual education guidance for kids starting quite young in terms of talking about sort of norms within families and there being different kinds of families and it kicked off a whole sort of thing and it really made me think about that time in the late 80s with with um clause 28 and actually how literally a whole culture of queer art and learning was was erased that literally didn't exist in schools you know everything from you know you know there was great teachers who pushed you in the right direction to to pick up things they thought you might be interested in so you know finding out about james baldwin and you know warhol and you know just sort of little springboards into kind of other worlds but in terms of a wider curriculum queer art and culture and the people who made that art 
just didn't exist. So the only way we did learn about it was through reading ID in the face and buying records and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's kind of it's, it's kind of strange when I think about it now, actually. But yeah, that's kind of how we did it. Yeah. And then in the face of all that, having something like Paris is Burning must have been quite a, a revelation. Yeah, because I mean, it was like a, you know, it was just such a, I mean, you know, it's not a technicolor film, but when you watch it from that coming from that environment, um, yeah, it's a big, it, it, it was like the sort of Wizard of Oz in a way, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, you really felt that you were in some, you know, technicolor world and it, it felt, because, you know, it just felt real. It felt like real life and it felt like it was the sort of um, cinematic evocation of kind of everything I'd been reading about and listening to. Yeah. Um, but it was totally alive, you know, flaws and all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was kind of you know it was it it was incredibly intoxicating as a seventeen year old watching that and thinking of the possibilities that came from that, but also knowing that actually you know I I lived in in Surrey in the suburbs, so you know it wasn't really more than forty five minutes away from being in the centre of London. But even I knew that London was never going to match what that film kind of showed me. So there was something kind of sad about that, thinking well maybe I'll only ever see that in New York. Yeah, but still wanting to find it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, a couple of things that you just touched on, like the, the idea of it not being a Technicolor film visually, but maybe emotionally, um, like everything mm. is so charged and exciting and they're all... Visceral, yeah. yeah. You can feel it. You hear the noise, you feel the heat, you kind of get the full sense of competition, you get the anguish, you get the kind of sense of hurt and individual and collective trauma, you get, you get it all. Um, you know, it's very much the same sensation I would imagine that kind of cis het men get from team sports. You know, <laughs> voguing yeah. is like a queer is the queer team sport. Yeah, um, and they in, say that and, you know in the same way the Eurovision is our kind of queer World Cup. Right, it's the same sort of thing. It's the same kind of emotions of competition and you know aggression and game playing and tactical maneuvers it's all that stuff that can be obsessed over and poured over to the kind of nth detail and whilst i never felt that with sport when i think about vogue balls and actually the concepts of well the reality of the houses and how houses compete with each other in battles think about it in the same way for sure yeah and you know the kids in the film say that they you know they say if you think about team sports this is exactly the same kind of thing and in fact yeah. we, pro- we probably prepare more <laughs> we spend more of our life focusing on this stuff than uh, people yeah. who play sports would yeah rather than an hour of practice a day it's a lifetime of lived experience i mean and that's that's kind of what made that film really stand out for me that it, you know it even now when you watch it it's, it's a it's a testament to lived experience and i remember when it came out and reading you know anything i could find about the film afterwards was that you know jenny um got a lot of livingston got a lot of heat for that film mm-hmm. because you know obviously by the time it came out there's lots of people in the community who thought a they were being exploited or b they weren't being used enough and that you know she was the film was a reflection of her eye and all, as you know and all documentaries of course are a reflection of the director's eye and kind of what what their preoccupations are in terms of what comes through for the for the film for sure but actually if you look at it now it feels it feels really really honest i suppose it's different if you're actually in the room because then your reality of that particular scene and that particular situation on that day at that time is going to be different but I, I still really do feel that it's probably the most perfect piece of art created about vogue balls and that scene and i don't think anything is ever going to touch it 
Mm-hmm. And just the enormous cultural impact that it's had and the amount of influence it's had across the board, not just for queer culture, but for, for every kind of culture, the, the, you know, phrases that they use and the style and the dancing, voguing itself, the way that all of those things kind of uh, found their way into the broader culture is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, the, the fascinating thing about voguing coming from New York at the same time that, you know, hip hop was breaking into the mainstream and you think of how, you know, disco, post-disco and sort of post-electro moved hip hop forward and you had a little sort of a break dancing culture and, and the same sort of crew gang house culture that came out of hip hop. And the same thing with the kind of proliferation of, you know, language and dress, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um so you know that I, I, you know in a lot in a lot of ways there is a, there is a there is a massive symbiosis between what happened in voguing and what happened in hip hop. But the difference with hip hop is hip hop had the records, so you had artists constantly breaking through to move something forward. Whereas with voguing, the you know it was really amazing when you could see dancers breaking out of that. So you had you know you know like Willie Ninja for example mm-hmm. and Pepper Labasia, but then the focus was always only ever on the scene, and then you know people felt they were you know the kind of mercurial eye kind of moved on somewhere else. But then the legacy, you're right, of course, is the fact that you know the language moved into the wider culture. So did so did the music. So did the dress. Um, yeah. 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 Um, also, another thing that really struck me just when you were talking about The Wizard of Oz, not just mm. this idea of having this kind of fantasy world that's like, you know, this dream that uh, all of these people exist in, but also uh, the idea of having a safe space that it was almost like the real world where there was all this danger, especially for the trans people who were involved in the ballroom scene, constantly having their lives threatened and having this safe space where they could go and exist freely. There are interviews about that as well, where people are saying, this is a place where when we go inside, it's like, it's okay to be who we are. I mean, and that's, you know, I I wrote a novel last year, which is this brutal house, which is set against the backdrop of Vogue and the ball scene. And it's about a, a protest of a group of mothers who sit silently on the steps of New York City Hall with all the children and basically they're protesting about the levels of homophobic and transphobic violence and structural inequality in New York that's just taken kids from the streets from them without anyone doing anything about it Mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do was not write a book about voguing because the perfect piece of art Paris is Burning existed but what I was drawn to was the concept of which existed within voguing of course which was the concept of chosen family and motherhood and house mothers having this parental role kind of brought upon forced upon them and realizing the responsibility of coming that came with that because they did want to look after those children and kind of shield them from some of the stuff that they had had to go through and you really do see that in the film for sure i mean it just the, the some of those monologues you know the monologues themselves in the film are, are just wonderful because they're so pared down and you learn so much from what they don't say as what they do say especially i think with peppers and um, dorian corey yeah because they'd been around for so long and, you know, they were like the ruling legendary mothers of their houses for over 20 years. So they kind of had stuff they wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. And it feels exactly like that. Like they've had these monologues in their mind and everything just kind of flows out of them. And the way that they speak is so instantly 
iconic that all of the things that they've said, those quotes are everywhere. It's um, almost it's almost like a yeah, because it's almost like a cliche because obviously we know those phrases kind of inside out we know that kind of wordplay inside out but they at the time you know the beauty of that film and the reason that they open up particularly when they're just speaking one-on-one to camera whether it's just the the kids the children or it's the it's the mothers but particularly the mothers is you get a sense i think especially when i'm watching when i was watching when you see pepper talking and you see dorian corey talking and and willie ninja as well is this sense of what I'm giving, what the opportunity you're giving me is ca- is camera time and a chance to tell my story. But actually, you get the deeper sense of what they're doing is trying to record, you know, a social history which is yet to be recorded because they've never been a they've never been given the voice to do it mm-hmm. um, outside of the wider culture. And again, that's kind of something I was really trying to do in the book, which is trying to write an unspoken, unofficial social history as you know as a point of record so obviously mine is fictional but and and their theirs isn't theirs is their their lives but you you see it you see it in the eyes that's what makes it so powerful mm-hmm. um and also you know this was in a time before there was reality television so the idea that someone is going to follow you around for a year with a camera and ask you just to, to tell you their life story to, to just give you their thoughts and just to be within the presence of the camera and to say what you needed to say obviously some of it is prompted through interview questions and some of it isn't which is the beauty of a documentarian's eye so the whole thing must have felt as novel to them as it was to us to watch it whereas now i wonder if you had a, a show like uh, a film that came out like that now within the culture that we have now where everything is on tap and you don't need a document a documentary crew to do it you can just do it on your own social media i wonder how we would look at it and how we would see we would we see through how it was constructed and 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 um before deciding whether it felt real or not yeah yeah and i think that it does also come back to information overload and everybody having access mm. to every kind of information and at the time when this documentary came out the idea that anything about queer culture would be mainstream was absolutely unheard of but specifically queer culture when it came to people of color queer culture when it yeah, came absolutely. to poor people it was you know it was a toxic time i mean mm. you know you know that in america it was a really toxic time wasn't it you know you know reaganism was, was still there you had was it or, or the end of reaganism no it was yeah 87 you still had reagan mm-hmm. and there was you know obviously the, the aids epidemic was kind of at its peak and it was it was a really difficult time to be a person of color and be queer and be trans mm-hmm. in even in a major city and you know the whole point of the major cities was always that they were the shining beacon and then you look at that film and say what the mothers did with those houses was they created a safe space for all the children but then you see how everyone lives and you see the reality of the balls and actually it's still people scrabbling around and they had to find and really keep quite precious the only safe space they had hence the balls yeah yeah and having that safety net that it provided to the people who were members of these houses as you said the idea of having a chosen family but also shelter and um, a place to go right yeah i I mean not not all of them i mean obviously when you see the film you still see people apart houses but they're still sleeping on the street yeah but then you then you also had mothers who did take in children and you know what the interesting thing about pose is and you know that's a completely separate conversation pose but the, the 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 real focus for pose on um, create you know really showing what 
queer family could be through just providing shelter and nurturing young people is just amazing. So that's kind of interesting. And, you know, a lot of those sort of narrative prods really did come from that film. You yeah, know, they've moved, they've moved past the confines of what Paris is Burning was as a, as a um, setup, I guess. But even now, even in, when you see the second season, you really do see how some of those narrative arcs still come from the film. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, just thinking about, obviously, homelessness is still a huge problem for queer people, still a very huge problem for trans people um, and yeah. trans young people in particular. But just, again, having this social network that allows you to, I mean, you know, not uh, a social network in the, uh, the tr- traditional idea, not, um, not Facebook, but, um, like, uh, having, yeah, having this, uh, uh, gr- a sense of community, uh-huh. you know, it's like, it, it was, it's really like a sort of pre-war concepts of having extended family where everyone knew each other on the street and everyone looked out for each other. Right. Um, even even in very even in very competitive ballroom situations, mm. you know the the safe space existed, and everyone you know everyone knew each other. And even if you hated the, you know you hated the other people in the houses and wanted to stab them in the eye with a with a pump, they were still your people because you knew once you you left the confines of the ball and walked to the other part of town, it was a completely different ball game. Right, and. Also, people are people and they're not always going to get along with each other and there's going to be rivalries and all that stuff. But having this community that's built around this central common activity, common um, shared joy, everybody wanting to have this creative pursuit um, that, that, that kind of brings them all together so that it's not... And that's the power of... That's definitely the power of the greatest moments of queer culture, but also and, and also youth culture. I mean, you know, if you think of, of really how the energy of punk really spread outside of London and became a massive, massive thing. Again, you know, it was kids turning up to the to the one place that they thought was their place. Um, and it's people gravitating towards other people. You see that you know you you wear the clothes of that movement that you really connect with, but then you see someone else in the street who has those clothes. You think, okay, I must have kinship with you. We must have some kind of shared interest. And in the same way that there's always been a code for queer people in terms of how to spot other queer people, it was the same, I guess, in other kind of youth culture movements. Yeah. Yeah. And just having this shared cultural identity that is uh, just as much a part of what binds you together as creating a community for survival. And I think that's really important that it's not just living to be able to stay alive, but having joy and and having something that, you know, they can focus their their energies on. They're all, even if their circumstances are really difficult, even if they do have to fear for their lives walking around the, the rest of the city where it, they're not surrounded by the people they know and love, not having that be the, the be all and end all of their lives. And the fact that this film shows that there is so much rich, exciting happy stuff happening at the same time even though there were all these terrible things happening in the world and it was a very difficult time to be queer not only because of aids but because you know queerness was was not as much in the mainstream and was uh or or when it was in the mainstream it was vilified and having these very and you know queer queer visible queerness in the in the you know in the 
mid 80s in america was essentially you know stephen carrington on dynasty mm. so you know again it was always totally aspirational and it, it was and it was why it wasn't it wasn't about people of color and it wasn't about you know trans people it was a very very limited narrow view of what you know queer culture essentially was white gay culture mm-hmm. you know um you know and it was the stereotype of what disco was it was the stereotype of what fire island was and the reality of that world for the you know for the people who are in paris burning is that it's miles away from that so you know that it, it, the idea of intersectionality you know trying to discuss intersectionality within queer culture in 80s and early 90s america just wouldn't wouldn't happen yeah. that's why you know it came through arbiters like you know a Paris is burning being out, but then also through music, and as we're going to talk about through Truth and Dare and Vogue and all that kind of stuff. Those were those they were the gatekeepers because actually the people who were in the film would had no access. Yeah, they only had access because someone turned up with a camera. It wasn't that they said, "Come down and bring your camera, and we're going to show you something." It was the other way around. So you can see at the time the criticisms of the film because obviously the people who were in the film had no agency. Mm-hmm. They spoke, but, you know, everything, they were at the mercy of whoever put the film together. It, it wasn't on their, although you get an eye of what was happening on the scene, it wasn't, put, um, it wasn't cut on their terms. It was cut on Jenny Livingston's terms. So I can understand, if you come from that world, how the lack of agency would have been massively frustrating when you saw how much buzz the film got. Yeah, and I, I think that is a... An excellent segue into <clears throat> into Truth or Dare. Um, I think uh, Truth or Dare also represented another part of that. Not necess- erasure, minimizing of the people who invented this culture, because it, you know, in at the same time that Madonna was bringing voguing into the mainstream, she was the focus of it. It wasn't the people who, you know, from the ballroom scene, and it took, still took quite a long time for the people who were in the ballroom scene to get any kind of recognition for it. Mm. But then, but then I think, you know, the, you know, that it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line with that. I mean, it's a very easy accusation to make. And for the most part, it is true. But at the same time, you know, Malcolm McLaren, was not getting any of the same shit for doing Deep in Vogue with Willie Ninja. Yeah, true. Um, you know, he put the record out, Willie was in the video, but that was it. It was still a Malcolm McLaren project, and Malcolm McLaren brought it into the world. It's completely different. You know, it's, there's, there's two things with this, with this concept, I think. that You know, there is the argument about, you know, appropriation, et cetera, et cetera. But also, it's also about a wider discussion of, being open to the outside world in, and letting it influence you in, in how you make art. Now, if you think about Vogue as a record, Vogue as a record isn't a, was never a Voguing record mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's a pop record. So you know she she was just making the records that she would have made. I think in a lot of ways, I suppose you know a I, I still love it and I think it's a great record and I can see I can I can still hear that kind of criticism about the appropriation of the scene. But I think the difference between appropriation and actually reflecting the scene are two different things. And I think you do really see it in Truth or Dare in terms of how that film is really informed by queer culture and the relationship with the dancers and the choice of dancers. It's not, you know, to be the biggest pop star in the world and not just to have a load of white blonde dancers is is very, very interesting. And she wanted a kind of 
you can tell that the you know she wanted kind of authenticity and what you get in the film is particularly when the dancers are on their own whether they're with her or not is a sense of an extent you know that's why it always feels like a companion piece to um paris is burning for me because it is literally what willie ninja talks about in the film about how he wanted to break out of new york because he wanted to travel in japan and be able to dance in japan and then you've got these kids who are on their first tour and they're you know they're in they're in rome they're in paris they're in madrid they're traveling around america they're in japan so so that i that as an extension i i find really fascinating and it you know and again it's the documentarian's eye so it's their choice of what they put in um, and the situations they're put in, but it just feels, you know, you you get completely a very honest sense of kind of their wonder and their um, complexity and their them getting their heads around being in that kind of mega stratosphere of being, you know, traveling the world with someone that famous again, which is, you know, must have been crazy. And, you know, again, in the pre-social media time, the era of just pure mega stardom was, is different to how it is now even. Yeah. So, yeah, so those things really stand out. And, you know, I was watching it yesterday. I was having a rewatch yesterday. And one of the, the clips that always stood out for me was when, so she's holed up in her flat having a throat problem, so they're all running around doing their own stuff. And all the dancers go to the Pride March in Manhattan and they're, you know, catcalling and just having a kiki and being quite fun. And then there's the, there, there's the moment of silence and everyone's at of there and everyone's got their fists in the air and it's the moment for silence for everyone who's obviously died of AIDS, who's, who's still suffering from AIDS and um, people who've died from homophobic or transphobic violence. And it's really still really powerful. And that moment has kind of always stuck with me. And when I think about, you know, just going back really quickly to, to my novel, This Brutal House, which is about a protest and it's a silent protest. And I watched that yesterday and I was like, that moment really unconsciously stuck with me and it has somehow wormed its way into my novel this you know this idea of a very an, an authentic community movement the idea that people you know protested on the street it was about pride but it was also about protesting it was obviously you know it was even then and then as now pride is still always a political as much as we say it's over commercialized pride is still a, a, a political response to where we've taken a turn within kind of socio-political culture mm-hmm. yeah all of that stuff being in the film. I mean, ha- have you seen the documentary about the dancers? Yes, Strike a Pose. Yes, thank you. And it's it's really, um, it's tragic. Uh, you know, the story is such a tough story. Mm-hmm. And when you see those final, I was actually really thinking about Strike a Pose, actually, when I saw the final sort of 15 minutes of Truth or Dare, where everyone is literally crying because they know this tour is over um, and they're going to go back to their lives but they're still really full of hope and then I thought about that film and I thought actually they they really went through it I mean because you know their job it was a job they did the tour the tour was over and then you then have to live your life working out what you're going to do and some people responded to that challenge and some people really collapsed under the strain of it yeah outside of the um kind of psychological effects of just uh, a job ending as a performer as somebody who whether you're a dancer or an actor or anybody who is involved in any kind of live performance that it's always going to be this finite thing you know it's Mm. it's very rare unless you're like in a 
Vegas residency or in a show like Les Mis that goes on for years and years and years, and it feels like it could be indefinite. And things end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But having to deal with the ending of this thing, but also having to cope with the effects of the film having come out and, you know, the... And not having the right to... And also not having the right to reply. Right. Because, you know, the film comes out and you might sort of be around when the film comes out, turn up at a premiere and stuff. But actually, once the film settles with you, there, there, was, there was no right to reply. And a lot of the sort of power of Striker Pose really was that it did essentially feel like a right to reply in terms of how they came across in, that, in the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, 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 both both of those films are really intense for different reasons, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the intensity of Striker Pose is very much down to when you see how intensely felt everything was on that tour. Because I think you know, creatives work on different jobs, and but that wasn't a di- that wasn't just a job. That was something quite different, and you could tell. You know, if you're in the middle of that kind of cultural moment which that kind of tour was, it must have absolutely been a massive, massive, massive come down to finish that tour and then go back to your to where you came from. I mean, that must have been crazy. Yeah. And it's it to have been a part of something. And with no support structure, you right. know, as with films and tours, once something ends, it ends. Everyone's off doing onto the next thing doesn't mean you're going to be best friends for life. You might not see any of these people again. And it was interesting that half the dancers hadn't seen each other for a really long time. Yeah. yeah. Some had, some hadn't. And dealing with so many complex things at the same time, like so many of them were HIV positive and some of them died of AIDS. But uh, Yeah, Gabriel died and then there was drug and alcohol problems. And, you know, it, it feels like a very kind of dysfunctional family. Yeah. And just having all of those normal things that happen with the end of a live performance project, but having it happen when when that the the culmination of it was this film that was such a spectacle and generated mm. so much controversy, and at a time when uh, it was near the peak of the AIDS crisis, and being queer was difficult for 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 anybody who was queer and especially for queer people of color and especially for queer yeah. people of color who are being displayed in cinemas across the country you know showing uh, a gay kiss that got tons of attention as this mm. like really radical shocking thing and again finishing this tour having the film come out have having things like that kiss being shown to everybody and having no way to cope with it yeah no agency yeah. yeah absolutely i mean that must have been really really tough yeah whereas now you you had you have the agency to respond to all those things and everything you do is a choice and and you know everyone in that film had a choice in terms of what they were doing but the the impact was was a lot different because people people don't have access you know she was the one who had access to the to the camera and the edit not them mm-hmm. yeah but at the same time you but, know- I, I, but 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 you know I, I will never be down on that film because I think I think. I think it, you know, I think it is amazing. It's an amazing film. It's really joyful and truthful. And some of it is really ugly. And that is the reality of touring. And that is the reality of being in the music business and working with very big artists who have very big machines around them. Once you get into that machine, whether, you know, if you're a cog, whether you're a dancer or you're a makeup artist, practicing or whatever, you're literally there just to serve the whole, you know, 
you have to accept kind of where your where your role is within that and that's very very difficult when the lines get blurred and everything suddenly feels very egalitarian because it isn't and when the tools over with it's very very clear how unegalitarian it actually is yeah yeah and that all of the dancers in that show were part of a machine that's serving a specific purpose and it's you know delivering madonna's message fulfilling madonna's vision and that was both a good and a bad thing you know seeing images of queerness not just in the film but in the tour that it's like the the choreography everything about it is so intensely queer um and she employed queer queer people i mean you know like jean paul gaultier and all of the uh, her brother all of the other people who helped to to put the the tour together but 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 i think you get this sense of full circle when you see the striker post documentary particularly by the end where you you really get a sense of their ownership of being there and that they were there and what they did contribute and that they feel proud that they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that that couldn't be taken away. So I th- again, that's kind of quite powerful as well. Yeah. And also the fact that, you know, the, all the dancers are sitting around this uh, dinner table having this reunion and some of them are saying, oh, I wish Madonna were here and that we could, you know, kind of have uh, this moment with all of us together and we could all reminisce. And one of them just says, look, she doesn't fucking owe us anything. She gave us this opportunity and it was up to us to do what we wanted to do with it. And I think that's, you know, that's... That's uh, very true. Yeah. And also, you know, I think if, you know, you couldn't have that dinner the dinner wouldn't be the same if she was there because then the focus would be on her relationship with them and actually it was their relationship with her mm-hmm. that we needed to hear and and their relationship with themselves and each other. So it would have been a completely different kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also just another thing about the complexity of that film is that it is this basically she's advertising her music she's advertising the tour and it's a you know documenting what happened as well but i think she really deserves credit for using that platform to draw attention to the aids crisis to have like you know to talk about <laughs> safer sex yeah, in, no, the, I, in her I, show i can I, I completely agree i mean i watched that again when it came out so 1991 18 and you know it really was the first time you, I, I'd really seen queer culture within the mainstream, not only within the dancers, but absolutely in terms of how the show looked. I mean, I remember going to the show the previous year and then you see it with different eyes when you see it on film. Um, but everything from the choreography to the costumes to the art to how she promoted safe sex, how she fought for AIDS, you know, her relationship with Keith Haring. It was, no other artist was doing that at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, on that kind of level, it w- it really was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, and it took a long time for the broader culture to catch up to that uh, that kind of depiction of of queerness. It was, Where- you know, a lot of queer teens. You know, people my age. When we talk about that film, it's the first time a lot of people saw themselves just by watching the dancers and watching that watching Truth or Dare. Mm. So you know that you know what that film gives really is immeasurable and i think the kind of gifts of that film really do outweigh the the criticism yeah thanks madonna (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um i feel very satisfied i think i think we got it uh good so um if 
people listening to this want to keep up with what you're you're working on, what is the best way to do that? Oh, well, you can get me on Twitter, which is um, Niven, N-I-V-E-N underscore Govindan, G-O-V-I-N-D-E-N. And I'm always on Twitter. Mm. So yeah, come and talk to me. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. Um, I, I really appreciate thank you, you for making time me. for me. Yeah. All right. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed it. Great. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. See ya. Bye. That was fun, wasn't it? Thanks again to Niven. Okay. Let's talk recommendations, shall we? Firstly, Better Call Saul just wrapped its fifth season and I can't cope with how good it is. I love it so much. I think I love it more than Breaking Bad. I know so many people who loved Breaking Bad but won't watch Better Call Saul, and those people are dumb. The storytelling in Better Call Saul is so compelling right from the beginning. The acting is amazing. It references Breaking Bad in subtle ways that are so satisfying without being over the top. And Aaron Paul isn't in it. Controversial opinion, he's a bad actor. Is that controversial or is it just a fact? You decide. Uh, I also really liked Unorthodox on Netflix, which is based on Deborah Feldman's memoir of the same name about her experience of growing up in and eventually leaving the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's not a perfect show, but I really enjoyed it, as have many, many other people, because it's a huge hit for Netflix, so you've probably already seen it. But you need to hear my opinion before you can completely draw your own conclusions, right? And also... There's a new track from Jamie XX that I really like called I Don't Know. It might be a little intense if you're not into dance music, but I'm into it, and I think we can all agree that that's the only thing that matters. And that's it for this week. Uh, a little scheduling news for you. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, kids. Daddy needs to lie down and rest for a bit. But do not fear, I've got tons of great episodes coming up. So, so much stuff that I'm excited to share with you. You'll just have to wait a little longer before I deliver it to you. Sounds like a fair trade-off to me. In the meantime, I'll still be posting on social media, so please follow me at Spark Parade so you don't miss me too much. And you can still rate and review the show. I know you want to help me out because you're kind and generous like that. And that is truly it. Take care of yourselves, stay home, wash your motherfucking hands, and I'll be back with new shows in a couple of weeks. Until then, bye! Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.